All right, so we're gonna actually pick up with something we were going over two or three weeks ago, excuse me. So we were talking about Proverbs and teachings in the word about work and labor and time, using your time well, making sure you're not wasting time, being a good steward of time. Then we got into talking about the will of God and sovereignty of God and that kind of thing. And that was really good. But we're going to circle back to what we were talking about three weeks ago with that topic of labor and rest and being a good steward of time. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. There's a few more scriptures in Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Thessalonians that we're going to get into that will be helpful for that topic. If we could turn down the microphone just a little bit more, there's just some feedback. That would be great. The microphone's just a little warm, yeah. Just turn it down. Okay, so first off, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. One of the things that we went over that three weeks ago, and this was a, at least a primary takeaway for me, was that we talked about how the Bible says in Colossians chapter 4 to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Uh, Ephesians 5 adds that, that the days are evil, which means the days are decaying. As believers, even though we have 24 hours in every day, we're supposed to treat every day as fleeting, which means if you live every day, Peter says, hastening the coming of the Lord, then that means we should understand time is running down. There's a limit, limited amount of time that we have to get the work of the Lord done. And the fatal flaw in perspective in regards to time, according to 2 Peter, is that if you live believing that all things will continue as they always did, then you'll waste your time because you think it's not worth a whole lot. But if you understand that time is limited, the Bible says there's a day when the Lord is coming and all the elements will burn with fervent heat, then that means you have a limited amount of time and which is a limited amount of time that you can give to the work of the Lord. So prioritize God's work. And the more you prioritize God's work, the more people you will see come to repentance and people that you see coming to repentance is what the Bible says it ultimately means to redeem the time. That means to win back or buy back something that was lost. So time that's wasted is ultimately lost. But when you bring people to repentance and you disciple them, you end up actually reproducing yourself, if you will. And that allows you indirectly to live, so to speak, multiple lifetimes, which means that if you've got people that you disciple, you can have 10 people all doing work because of a seed that you sow, which multiplies your effectiveness. And that's how you redeem time. So the most effective use of your time at the end of the day is to make disciples. And that was the main point of what we were going over three weeks ago. If you want to win back time that was lost or wasted before you knew Christ, or even after you knew Christ, make disciples. That's how you redeem time and don't let it go to waste. So today what we're going to get into is more about rest and enjoyment because it's important to understand that God wants us to rest and he wants us to work. Both are in Christ, but there's a right and wrong way to do both. So that's what we're going to talk about. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is where we will begin and we'll start in, uh, let's see, verse... 18. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18. Solomon speaking, he says, Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy 
the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. So we're told, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Ecclesiastes says it is good and fitting. Now, fitting means it's, it's becoming of or appropriate for. So as those who keep the commandments of God and who follow Jesus, it is good and fitting to enjoy life. So this doesn't mean that you just have to live your life as a stone and emotionless and religious and legalistic. Of course, God wants us to enjoy life. It's good and it's fitting. So that's the first point. But here's how, he says, the good that you're supposed to enjoy and eat and drink from is the good of, other translations say, the fruit of all your labor or toil under the sun. So point number one is that rest and enjoyment is meant to be the good from or the fruit of your labor. Now, there's a proverb that's very similar to this, which we'll get into in a moment. But there's a few verses earlier in Ecclesiastes 5 that kind of reiterates the same point. So if you go to verse 12 in Ecclesiastes 5, it says, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. So the more work that you have and the harder that you work, the sweeter your sleep will be. And it says, whether it's little or much. So the little that the righteous has, Proverbs says, is of much greater value, much more valuable than the abundance that the wicked has, right? So it's adding that what you enjoy as a believer is better when it's the fruit of really hard work. If you take rest out of laziness because you don't have work or little work to do, then it says you won't be permitted to sleep, which is really that it's not going to be restful ultimately. So a proverb we're going to look at uh, is chapter 20 and verse 13. That's where we'll go next. But just as to sum this up before we read it, if you just look at the very beginning when God created this world, he created for six days and on the seventh he rested. Then he instilled that in his people, the Israelites, and said, you work for six days and you rest on the seventh. And if you follow scripture all the way through into Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, we're told that rest was always meant to be preceded by hard work. And rest is not really rest nor is it rejuvenating unless it is preceded by hard work. This is the model that we're given in Scripture. So Proverbs 20, in verse 13, says, Do not love sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will be satisfied with bread. So this is interesting I'm sure we've all said it before where it's come out of our mouths. Oh, I love sleep. <laughs> we've probably all said it. At some point, we've at least thought something similar. And Proverbs is very clear. We're not supposed to love sleep. When he says, open your eyes and you will be satisfied with bread, he's saying, if your joy is actually in work, 
and you open your eyes to work, that's what makes what you enjoy satisfying. So you will have somebody who, let's say, you know, you work an average nine to five job, let's say, and then the rest of your evening, all you want to do is relax. Even, let's say it's just manual labor. It's hard work. All you want to do is relax after that. If you work really hard during that work day, it makes that relaxation better. It makes it sweeter. However, when it comes to the work that Ecclesiastes and Proverbs is talking about, it's not just the toil of our jobs. Because the Bible says we're to always abound in the work of the Lord. So when it's talking about rest being sweeter, oh, that's uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Um, we're told to abound in the Lord's work. So when it says, enjoy the fruit of your labor, and that's when you'll be satisfied, that's when you will have rest. He's not actually just talking about your, your manual labor, your natural work. It is true as a principle that diligence in any work you are involved in produces more satisfying rest as a result. But ultimately, if we don't have the work of the Lord in our lives, we're never going to enjoy life or rest the way that we're intended to. So in other words, if you want to be able to enjoy your eating and drinking, your resting, and anything else you enjoy in life, it requires that rest being preceded and surrounded by the work of God. Now, the work of God can be a part of your occupation or career, but it ultimately comes down to whether you're reaching people or not and whether you're growing in faith. Um, for example, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says, much study is wearisome to the flesh. Reading the Bible and studying the word of God is work. And it's good work. That's also part of the work of the Lord. So what does this mean then when it comes to, uh, or how does scripture state this? So there's another proverb where you can read about this, which we will go to next. Let's see if I can find the reference here. Proverbs 23, verse 4. Wait. Yeah, Proverbs 23, verse 4. And that's going to be in connection to Ecclesiastes 6, verse 7. So there's going to be two verses we'll look at here. Okay. So 23, verse 4 in Proverbs first says, Do not overwork to be rich. Because of your own understanding, cease. This is one unique proverb where it actually tells you to stop working, which is interesting because you've got all these verses that say, hey, you should work hard. It'll make your rest better. But in this case, it says, quit it. <laughs> in which context is saying overworking to be rich. So your motives, what's driving your labor? Is it the gospel or is it just making a bunch of money? So then if you look at Ecclesiastes 6 verse 7, it says, all the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet his soul is not satisfied. So there's like this interesting, what appears to be a contradiction at first, because it 
previous chapter, Ecclesiastes says, work hard. It'll make your eating and drinking enjoyable. It'll make your rest really sweet. But then it says, man, but all the labor of man is just for our own mouth anyway, so it's not satisfying. Yeah. It should be already be on. Yeah, it's on. Hello? Yeah. Yep, okay. yep, you're good. Um, would you say rich is a matter of not an amount then, but like you said, if you're working for the gospel, if you're working for money? Working for money, yeah. Would be, would be the definition of working to get rich. Right, right, yep. What are you working for? So in Ecclesiastes 6-7 says, all the labor of man is for his mouth, yet the soul is not satisfied. It's establishing a very simple truth, which is that if your labor is for yourself, your rest will not be satisfying, no, nor will your work ever be. So it's not just the work itself, it's also your motives. So you've got basically two truths here, which is that the harder you work, the sweeter your rest and your enjoyment will be. But if your work is for yourself, it isn't going to satisfy at all. So it ultimately is a false sense of satisfaction if your labor is for yourself or for your own mouth. So it's really important, whether it's your job or the work of the Lord, whatever you do for yourself is not going to result in satisfaction, which means if you want your career or whatever it is that you do for work to be fulfilling, you have to find out how you can bring the motive of the gospel into that work. So how can you reach people through your work? And that is what makes the labor satisfying. A lot of us will say that, you know, if you find a job that you love, then you'll be fulfilled, but that's not actually true. It might be fulfilling to the flesh, but if it's, it's not going to be satisfying to the soul, Ecclesiastes says, if it's just still for your own mouth. So if you want your work to be satisfying to the soul, it's about it being not for yourself, but for the Lord. That's why the Bible says, everything you do, do as unto the Lord. And that's when you have a reward for your labor. That's what Colossians says. Do you have a comment? Microphone? Can we pass the microphone down to Kevin? So scientists have found that, I may have mentioned this once before, but scientists have found that when we do other nice things for other people, we get this sense of fulfillment and it releases dopamine in our brain which is almost like a narcotic, and it gives us this, this wellness feeling. And, and I, I can't substantiate this, but I would bet that when we are doing the work of the Lord, something that is satisfying to both us and Him, that we would get probably that same release, which would make that breast feel that much more rewarding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, amen. Yeah, so selflessness in your labor is what ultimately makes it satisfying. So, work hard, be selfless. And then the rest you get from that is what is sweet. So, summing it up, just kind of what I started with, that, and I say this once before, I'll just repeat it for the sake of clarity, that if you are tired because of how hard you worked for the Lord, then the sleep and rest you get will be really good. The issue is that, like that proverb says, if you turn to loving sleep, then what happens is any work that you do, you do just so that you can go relax. But that's an impure motive. It's, it's eating or working for your own mouth. It's just about what you can gain from it. 
And so what it's saying is that as long as you love sleep, as long as you love rest, then it's still for yourself and it's not going to be satisfying. What we're supposed to love is the work itself. And Jesus, in fact, actually says in Matthew 11, um, I think one, one of you guys actually prayed this when we were doing prayer. Um, yeah, Dolores, yeah, about Jesus has come to me. Hey, let's, let's go to it. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, because I think this is really important to make note of. Because typically when we think of work, we think of something that wears you out, which in one sense is true, obviously, with what we're reading. But Jesus teaches something about following him and working for him that is different, different understanding. So Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So laboring resulting in being burdened down. The Bible says in 1 John 5 that his commandments are not burdensome. So the burden that Jesus is talking about is not following him. This would be the burden of the law, is what Paul teaches in Romans. People being burdened down, weighed down, and tired because of trying to keep commandments that were intended to make them guilty, which is a very tiresome thing. <laughs> so then Jesus comes around and says, come to me, I'll give you rest. But then here's the thing. People think, oh, the work is over. But he doesn't say that. Verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke is an implement for labor. For work. It was a, basically a big piece of wood that you'd put across the necks of two oxen and it would also be attached to a plow that they would drag behind them to plow a field. That was what a yoke was. And Jesus just got done telling them, you're burdened because of the wrong kind of work, so do my work instead. He doesn't say quit working. He says do my work. So when Ecclesiastes says, don't overwork to be rich, if you have understanding, cease. He's not saying become sedentary or do nothing. What he's saying is change your mind so that instead of working for yourself, it's for him. And the more you work for Christ, the more rest you have in that labor. And that's what fixes laziness too, because then instead of loving sleep, you love the work. And then you have rest in, in the time that you have. When we are harnessed up with his yoke, then he is harnessing our power toward his end. Yes. Yep. So maybe I'm incorrect here, but my understanding of this yoke, yes, it's the, the piece of wood that goes between the two oxen. When they work together, you plow a straight line. Mm -hmm. If one overpowers the other, it goes crooked. But there's another meaning to this yoke, and the yoke was the strip of fabric that a priest or the high priest would wear to identify himself. And so I also think here that Jesus is saying, take my yoke. I'm your priest. Let me be your priest and sure. learn from me. So I think that there's kind of a double, double meaning there. Yeah, yeah, there's plenty of other scriptures that talk about that. Jesus is our, our high priest, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so any other questions or comments about this so far? Yeah, microphone. 
so maybe you've addressed this in the past, but a question that I've always had and I can't, I kind of go back and forth on it, is the, the role of a man in, in a home, okay? So 1 Timothy 5, 8, I mean, in this particular chapter, is talking specifically regarding widows. But in 8 it says, But if any provide not for his own, and specifically for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than infidel. So I take that scripture as being a man as one of my roles and responsibilities in my household is to provide for my family. Which I think is godly. I think that's good. Now how do you have that mindset when your position that you have that you provide for your family with isn't, it's a secular position. You know, it's a, it's a secular job. Is it having the mindset that you're going to do that job and you're going to do it well? You're going to do it as unto the Lord and look for those opportunities to sow into the kingdom in that space and also knowing that you're providing for your family? Or how do you, as a man, wrap your head around that? Do you get what I'm saying? I do. Yes, I understand. Okay, so there's kind of three parts to that question. There's whether it's considered, I'll put it this way, whether it's considered God's work to one, provide for your household, two, work hard as an example of service to God in a secular context, and three, sow seeds of the kingdom, which would ultimately be finding people to preach the gospel to in that secular context. All of those are godly, and there's plenty of scriptures that talk about all three of those, actually. So the first one that Brant mentions in, uh, in 1 Timothy 5 uh, in verse 8, there is a cross-reference to that, which I think is important for us to look at, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So let's go there first, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we will start in verse 6. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. So we're starting with that first point of the question, which is providing for your own. It says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. And then he states what the tradition is. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil, night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Verse 10. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies, busy, people, busying yourself with things that are ultimately meaningless. That's what that means. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yeah, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So here's the first connection we got to make. First Timothy 5 says, if you don't provide for your own, you have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. So that's the underlying truth. Then Thessalonians, Paul says, if a person walks disorderly, and in this context, he says, who refuses to work, withdraw from him. Why? Because if somebody does not work, 
after the second and third admonition. Withdrawing from them is establishing a truth that 1 Timothy says, which is that they have denied the faith. Right? So why would you have somebody in fellowship with you who has denied the faith because they refuse to work? You wouldn't, and that's why you withdraw. But he says, admonish him as a brother, don't count him as an enemy. In other words, he hasn't become an enemy. He's still your brother, but you got to withdraw from him because he's made a decision in his actions to deny the faith. So point number one, working to provide for your own is actually a continuing demonstration of your commitment to the faith. But providing for your own is not just materially, it's also spiritually as well. So, and we'll get to that more in a moment, but that addresses that first point there. Providing for your own is glorifying to God, and it is a continuance of your faith. One moment. Second thing, in the secular context where you're working, um, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and there's a verse that addresses that. And we'll just read verses 1 and 2. Before we do, Amy, you can make your, your comment. Yeah. Um, at one point, you had taught that the word provide meant spiritually. I mean, it's both. Yeah. In context, 1 Timothy 5 is a, in the context of material provision. But the word also, yes, applies to spiritual. It has to. Because if you're working hard for your family, but you have no spiritual, particularly ahead of a household, you have no no spiritual oversight, then that's ultimately not provision. Yeah. To provide financially, but not provide spiritually. Right. Yeah. Okay. So First Timothy 6, second point, secular context, how does work honor God if it's a secular job? First Timothy 6, verse 1. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So this is really important um, for us to understand the context of this. So whenever the New Testament mentions, mentions masters and bondservants, it was literally talking about slavery. Because slavery was still around in the day that the New Testament was written. These verses do not justify slavery. That's not what they're for. What is being taught is that when you have believers living inside of a society that still has slavery legalized, how do they navigate that in a way that honors God and brings people to repentance? So he's saying, if you're a believer and you're somebody's slave, you should intend to lead that your slave master to repentance. And he's saying, you're not going to be able to do that if you treat him like a piece of dirt. If you complain, you're just a men pleaser, you just do well when they're looking, but then you don't when they're not looking, you mouth off. He's saying, in this case, in this verse, he says it causes the doctrine of God to be blasphemed. It's hypocrisy, right? So he's saying you should want your master, in this modern context, it would be your employer, to come to know Christ. And the way you do that is by adorning the gospel rather than blaspheming it, which is showing an example of hard work. Uh, an honorable subservience to your employer. That is how you adorn the gospel. The opposite of that blasphemes the gospel. So point number two, 
is that working hard as unto the Lord, seeing Christ as your boss, if you will, and your master, sets an example to all of your fellow employees plus your employer of who you serve because you bear the name of Jesus and therefore it adorns the gospel, it beautifies the message that you believe and preach to the people who hear and witness you. And then second to that, you have in verse 2, it says, um, if you have believing masters, so this would be modern context, let's say you work for a Christian company and there's a Christian boss, or even if it's not a Christian company, but it's a Christian boss, don't despise them because they're brother. In other words, just because they're part of the household of God doesn't mean you can slack. He's saying, hey, still work really hard. Serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. You're going to be offering benefit to somebody who's also a believer. And it's, we're supposed to do good to all and especially those who are of the household of faith, Galatians says. So there's, what's that? Galatians 6, I believe it's verse 5 or 6. Verify that for me and let me know if it's right or wrong for the sake of everyone else. It's in like the first paragraph, I believe. You'll find it. Um, okay, so that's the second point. There's plenty of people who will be benefited, both believers and unbelievers, in a secular context if you work hard because it adorns the gospel. And then the third is preaching the gospel. So in that secular context of a job, sharing Christ with people, of course, is part of the deal. But the thing is, if you try to be a preacher, which just means heralder of the message of the gospel, to your coworkers, but then you have terrible work ethic, work ethic that's not a great witness. You're blaspheming the very doctrine you're trying to purport, which means you're fighting against yourself. So you actually need both in order for your message to be effective. You need to be a preacher of the gospel and you need to have good work ethic so that you're delivering a doctrine and adorning it, which is making it attractive at the same time. So do not despise labor. And in fact, it's Probably better, just as a practical example, if you get a job in a secular context, before you go and start trying to preach to everyone, build a reputation of hard work and ethic first. And people should know that, hey, if somebody asks you if you're a Christian, yeah, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. Work hard. Build that reputation for first. Adorn your message. And then when you start preaching it or start sharing it with others, you have that reputation in place, which makes it more attractive. So that would just be a practical practical thing to do. Um, okay, does that answer answer that, that question? Okay. All right, so let's go back to 2 Thessalonians, where we just were. Second Thessalonians, same chapter, chapter 3. And let's go back to verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 8, he says, Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we not, might not be a burden, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you, ought to, how you should follow us. So he finishes with, at least in this paragraph, they're setting an example. So what Paul is doing and teaching here is supposed to be an example to other believers. And what he begins with is that we weren't disorderly, we didn't eat anybody else's bread free of charge. We didn't meddle in other people's business, but we worked with labor and toil. And here's where it gets interesting. Night and day. So Paul had so much to do that 
If he wasn't sleeping, he had enough work for night and day. So it is, this is an example, Paul says. So how we should understand this. Now, this might not be your nine to five job because, I mean, unless you're working a day and a night shift, which I wouldn't recommend. But (laughs) if you're working a day job, And let's say for whatever reason you're not sleeping at night, you should still have enough good work to do to occupy you that night, even if you're not sleeping. And so this can be, there was, for example, one guy I was talking to a while back who was a a former police officer. And if he had nights where he couldn't go to sleep, which he was used to that because as a police officer, he spent a lot of nights staying up. And he said he would just drive his car around and he would find people out in the street. And he had his whole like van set up with cameras and security equipment. He would he would pick people up in his in his car, and he would if they were homeless, he'd go bring them to a shelter. He'd go buy people some food, and he would share Christ with them. And he he had something to do at night because he made a decision. I'm going to do something for the Lord if I'm awake. No, and so that's really a decision that you got to make. If you have finished your day work, like for Paul, it was he was a tent maker. You should always have something to occupy you. And for Paul's case, if it wasn't tent making, it was preaching the gospel, it was study, it was reading, something productive and that produces fruit in your life. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that 24-7 you always have to be doing what we may call something productive because Ecclesiastes does say, hey, you should also enjoy the fruit of your labor. Eat and drink, rest, enjoy life. That's also part of it. The point is that you love the work of the Lord. You don't love the enjoyment, which is to idolize it. And because you love the Lord's work, it makes the enjoyment you do have much, much sweeter. And so it's okay. You want to go to a park and relax. You want to watch a movie, whatever. That None of that is wrong. The point is, what are you prioritizing and what do you love? Do you love the Lord's work or do you love sleep? Or in other words, do you love the eating and drinking? Do you love the enjoyment? Because if you love or idolize the sleep, the rest, the enjoyment, that's how it gets into laziness and gluttony and that kind of thing. So you love the Lord's work. And that's where Jesus says, if you take my yoke, my work upon you, you have rest. So that's the, this is the example that Paul sets. We aren't disorderly. We don't meddle in other people's business, but we labor night and day. So if you're not sleeping, you should have enough work to occupy you the whole night. Just think about that, which is a lot of extra time. And it's just good to ask yourself that question. What work can I do if I, if I were not sleeping? What would I do? Okay, then verse 10, let's just go there. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. This goes back to what we started with in Ecclesiastes. He establishes a principle They did not want to let people eat if they didn't work. So it's interesting because in today's context, you can eat more as a low-class citizen in this nation than somebody who works 15 hours a day on the other side of the world. This nation is it's very blessed yes but it enables laziness almost more than any other nation in the whole world and paul this is this is a doctrine this is not he's not stating a observation of the world around him what he's stating is a truth that they taught and a discipline that they enforced in their church family which was that if a person isn't going to work we're not going to feed them 
So if you want a person to be fed, he's saying we should help them work first. And that's supposed to be taught. And that is how you encourage good work and connected to Ecclesiastes. That's what makes the eating and drinking glorifying to God. And that's what makes it that much more sweet and that much more enjoyable. What you enjoy and your rest is meant to be preceded by hard work, which is what we started with. So you teach people to work, and that's what makes the eating and drinking the enjoyment glorifying to God and sweeter for them. And so if you, for example, this is a, you know, we can't apply this to, apply this to communion because when we get the church together, we want everyone to be part of that. But practically speaking, this means if you have any kind of relationship or connection with somebody that you're discipling and let's say they're unemployed and they certainly have the capacity to get a job and they're not, we're not supposed to just feed them a whole bunch. And yes, you can have people over for dinner and that kind of thing, but you're not supposed to just always just, oh, let's eat together, let's eat together, let's eat together, because otherwise it just, it trains a person's mind to believe that, oh, I can just mooch off the church. And that's not what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to be encouraging people to work diligently, and that is part of the fellowship of the body of Christ, encouraging each other to work. And so that's just a really important thing when it comes to discipleship, but we can apply that to our own lives as well in that sense. Okay, so then he says, we'll just finish it out. Verse 11, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busy bodies. Now, it's interesting that he uses the term busybody. First Timothy 5 also mentions it. He says being a busybody is disorderliness. And disorderliness, in the same chapter Paul says, is grounds for a person being removed from fellowship, like withdraw from that person. So being a busybody is a pretty serious deal. And he says it's not, they're not working at all. So they're busying themselves with something that is ultimately meaningless. And that is not work. They're not contributing to the right, they're not contributing. Right. So there's, when you think of being a busybody, it's if you're not working to provide for your own and you're not doing anything of the Lord's work, both of those things are absent from your life. The only thing you would be doing after that is busying yourself with meaningless things. Okay, you can go first, Jacob, and then. Grounds for disorderliness is, I mean, disorderliness is grounds for being removed. Was that a reference to? Yeah, verse 6 and verse 11 of Second Thessalonians 3. Yeah. Yes. Just going back to a previous study you did on uh, women speaking in church, wasn't there something about that word busybody that women should not speak in church? Wasn't there some kind of a definition that it meant being a busybody. Well, let's um, read it. Just going back to your, I, I'm trying mm -hmm. to remember that women, that women speaking in church study you did. Yeah, so that was a different, a different context. Um, there, there is a connection in regards to the church. It's not about speaking in church, but it's about just fellowship inside the church, um, and that's in First Timothy five, which I was going to go to next anyway. So I think we should just read it. First um, Timothy five. Let's start in verse 9, since we already mentioned verse 8. So verse 9 says, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. Now, being taken into the number, he's talking about the widows that are counted uh, in the list of women that are going to be financially supported by the church. 
So they, would, they literally had a list of people that needed financial contribution from, from the church because they could not provide for themselves. And so Paul says, if they're under 60, they shouldn't be on the list. If they are 60 and older, they should be included. So then he says, take them into the number. Then, um, but make sure she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has, wa- if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. So it's not just an age issue. Yes, you got to have in place that she's 60 or older, but then he says she's got to have a good reputation. And that reputation is the second way that you know that she's just not, that she's not just mooching. She's showing diligence, right? She, she works in doing what God has called her to do. She's showing diligence in every good work, which would be the Lord's work. And that is what makes her uh, actually deserving of financial support from the church. And so that's what he talks about there. Then verse 11, he says, but refuse, don't count into the number. Don't financially support. This is what this means. The younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. And so this, in its uh, original context, this literally meant people that would wander from house to house because the church met house to house uh, almost entirely back then. And so they would have these individuals, in this case, he's talking about younger widows that would literally go to all these meetings of the church because they knew they would get fed, essentially. And that's all they would do. And that was how they occupied themselves. And that's how they kept their stomachs full. And so he's saying, you don't want people who just wander to different gatherings of the church and they have nothing better to do. So they mooch off of everyone else and don't have anything good to talk about. So they just gossip. And he's saying, don't count them into the number. And so then, then later he teaches what they, should, what they should do. And he says, I desire that they marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So he's saying with this particular kind of woman, he says, hey, they should be married, bear children, manage the home. That's the work they should be given to do. Um, that's what he teaches in this context. So if you've got a younger woman who got married young, husband died, and she's not doing anything productive, he says it's good for her to get married again bear children, manage the house, occupy herself with that work. And the reason he says is so that there's not opportunity to the devil to speak reproachfully. So it's another example of the gospel being blasphemed. It is a stain on the reputation and witness of the church and its doctrine if you have that kind of activity going going on. So this is another example of him saying, hey, if there's this busyness, but it's it's Uh, meaningless busyness, there should be something, everyone should have something to occupy them. So even if you're removing this teaching from the context of younger widows, if you just apply it to everyone, he's saying we should all have something to busy ourselves with that's meaningful and that's good. Something to occupy us, I I guess would be a better word. So that, that's the, uh, Phil, that's the part of the teaching that is in reference to, to women in first Timothy five. So what you mentioned was a different, different context, but, um, yeah, okay, so that's that teaching there. And we will look at one more thing real quick. So specifically, uh, we just talked about women. I'd like to address men now for a moment and why it is important 
for men specifically to work. Uh, and this, this goes all the way back in Genesis. So I'd like to go there. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. So we've already established that it is important for a person to provide for their own. I think it's worth noting that when 1 Timothy 5 says, if anyone does not provide for his own, that Greek word, anyone, literally means anyone, man or woman. It's not actually talking specifically about a man. It's just talking about people in general. And I think the reason why he writes it that way is because Proverbs 31, actually one of the things it says about a virtuous woman is that she provides food for her household. So there is a sense in which... uh, both wives and husbands have a responsibility to work to provide food for their household. But specifically for men, there's a teaching in Genesis that's unique uh, from the responsibility of of the women or from a wife. And so this is what we're going to read about. So Genesis chapter 2. And we'll just... We'll start in verse 15. So God just created Adam. Eve is not created yet. Genesis 2 verse 15 says, Then the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then, verse 18, he says, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable To him. Okay, so here's what's noted. God gives the command to Adam to tend and keep the garden and not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gives those two commands before Eve was ever created. Then he creates Eve as this helper and then gives her to Adam, which means Eve's job is to help Adam do those things. And then in addition, you obviously have Genesis 1 saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. They do those, thing, those two things together as male and female. But as far as their work inside the Garden of Eden, God gives the command to Adam, tend and keep it, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then Eve is created as a helper comparable to Adam to help in that work. It's also important to note, man was made from dirt and woman was made from man or out of man, 1 Corinthians 11 says. And in what man and woman were made out of actually gives us a little glimpse into what they were made for as well. God told Adam his job was to work and to till the ground. And he was made out of the ground he was working. So that specific kind of labor is actually characteristic of what God put in man's nature. So it is, it is in the male nature to work and till the ground. And that was what Adam's job was. That's the the task that God gave to Adam. Woman was made out of man. So woman's greatest work, specifically as a wife, because she's made out of man, is to work until the man. (laughs) Which is basically helping, Eve helping Adam. That was the work, what she was made out of and what her work is to be uh, consisting of. And so you, you will find that most effective family units will have man laboring most when it comes to working and tilling the ground, which in most cases is traditionally applied to just simply being the breadwinner, which I think is okay. There's biblically not necessarily a huge problem with a woman having some work 
Um, Because like we said, Proverbs 31 says that part of what a wife does is provide food for a householder, helping in that. Um, But you have man working until in the ground, providing, providing for the, for the, for the family. And then the woman supporting and helping her husband in doing that. And the family units that have mastered that and get really good at that uh, is how the gospel is partly adorned. So point number one, when it comes to why it's important specifically for a man to work is because as men, we were made for it. And in fact, if you look at how Adam and Eve fell, remember one of the commands given to Adam was don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then Eve was created, which made it Adam's job to tell Eve what God said. So the reason why Eve fell was partly, well, first Timothy says Eve was deceived, but part of what caused Eve to be deceived was a neglect of Adam. So that also adds that part of man's job, this is the providing spiritually, Adam failed to provide spiritually the word of God to Eve. And that's part of what caused her deception. So that's the providing spiritually part. You have Adam working to till the ground, but he also has the word of God that he needs to be a good steward of. So that's that second part of that, that labor. Um, so you've got that it's in man's nature, but because of the sense of this being attached to the, the work of God's word, the spiritual work, you also see man or men specifically being greater protected when they're occupied. Now you see this as one example in Second uh, Samuel chapter 11. This is what we'll finish with here. That it says that in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and the rest of the army out to war, but David stayed at Jerusalem. This is the beginning, the first two verses of the most catastrophic decision that King David ever made in his whole life. Uh, Oh, there we go on the screen. We'll just read it again. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle, when it was fitting for a king to go to battle. David sent Joab and all his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. This is also the most telling part of the whole chapter as well. You have to understand this verse in order to understand the rest of it. So because David stays at Jerusalem and relaxes when he should be working, he's tempted. And then whole thing, the adultery with Bathsheba, she gets pregnant. He tries to hide it. So tries to get Uriah to come home. Now, my favorite part about this story is actually Uriah's character. It's the best part of the whole thing because Uriah is called back into Jerusalem by David from the field of battle. And David says, you know, good to see you. How's it going? How's the war faring? Right? Just trying to appear amiable. And then David says, hey, you should go home to your wife, sleep with your wife, eat and drink, relax, enjoy yourself. And Uriah uh, doesn't go home. So then David's like, okay, well, I have him stick around with me and I'll try to get him drunk. So David gives him some wine and he, he even gets drunk. This is what's crazy. Uriah ends up drunk. And even while he's drunk, he will not go home to his wife, which is crazy. So then David tries it again the next night and he still won't do it. And David is getting really frustrated. Now it's very interesting when you have somebody who tries their absolute hardest to get a person to sin and they won't. That's good character. Even when he's drunk, 
he's godly, <laughs> which is like, it's kind of an oxymoron, but it's just interesting, right? So, so Uriah won't go home. So then David lets Uriah out and he shuts the door and Uriah falls asleep on the ground outside the door and sleeps there overnight. No pillow, no nothing, just gravel. And David gets up the next morning, opens the doors. Uriah is there. And David's like, what, why didn't you go home? And here's Uriah's answer. He says, the whole army is still on the field of battle. And that's where I was. We were sent out by command of God to destroy these Canaanites from Israel. That is my job. That's why I'm here. If I go home to my wife to relax, when all of my fellow soldiers are on the field of battle, that's a disgrace to them and to God and to my calling and to why I've been created and why I'm on this earth. So if Uriah were to go home and eat and drink and sleep with his wife, would he have been sinning? Not necessarily because he's married, right? But Uriah believed even a good thing was wrong when it was in neglect of the work that he was called to. So this is an example of when you have a man that is grounded in good work, it protects him from temptation. It strengthens him, makes him more resilient from temptation and keeps him from the evil one. A man that is without work, that doesn't have ground to till, is more vulnerable. You just, time and time again, you guys have probably heard the phrase that uh, idleness is the devil's playground or... Is that, is that what the phrase is? Have you guys heard that before? You know what I'm talking about? I, idle hands, yeah. Idle hands, the devil's workshop, right. So that is a biblical truth. You don't have that phrase word for word quoted in scripture, but it's biblically based in that when you are idle, it makes you vulnerable, and especially for men. So if you look at the difference between men and women, this is really interesting, the way that the Bible writes this. For men, if they neglect to work, and occupy themselves with good work, they're more vulnerable to sin and deception. For women, 1 Timothy 2 says, neglect of managing the home and taking care of children makes them more vulnerable to deception, as Eve was. So you've got both men and women have a task that they are called to that helps not only occupy them, but also protect them as well. And so it's really important for men and women, specifically wives and husbands in this context, uh, to be occupied with good work. If you're not married, the point is you still should be occupied <laughs> with good work. Um, and there's plenty of work out there to do, whether it's to provide for your household or yourself, or whether it's the work of the Lord in terms of making disciples and bringing people to repentance. So the more occupied you are, the more protected you are, and uh, the sweeter your rest and enjoyment will be. And if that is how you live and maintain your life, that is what's pleasing to God. Most people rest too much because they love it. They love it too much, right? And that's an idol. And so if we're, if we're living and working just for the weekend, just so that we can relax, then we've made an idol out of rest, in which case it never satisfies. And that's why you always have to go back to it because you're never satisfied with it. So the Bible says, be, involve yourself, occupy yourself in good work and it'll make your rest sleep and you actually need less of it when you're a hard worker, but it's more rejuvenate, rejuvenating than it ever would have been if you had not lived by that principle. So, amen.